unhappiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this time it's time for a special. We're going to be reviewing two films from the 1990s. This is Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 2. Isn't that right, George? That's correct. And the reason we're doing this is in line with the upcoming Mission Impossible Fallout. We decided to go back. We couldn't decide whether to do the first Mission Impossible film, the second one. And we thought, you know, what the hell? Let's just do both of them in one episode. Yeah, they, 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 both films uh, mean a lot to us. We have sort of a, a certain fondness, uh, you know, and nostalgia for these films. And I think these two films are quite unique compared to the, the other films in the franchise that have, from sort of Mission Impossible 3 onwards, they've kind of followed a, a certain formula. But we thought, you know, the first two kind of stand out and there's a lot of to sort of compare, contrast, poke fun at uh, and enjoy. Absolutely. And even though we're covering two films and we're covering them with the usual format where we talk about the production, uh, we talk about what we like about them, our first memories. Uh, we have still managed to keep this entire episode down to under 90 minutes. Mm. Um, so uh, if you want to skip ahead to Mission Impossible 2, that's coming. The one thing we would point out is that at the beginning of Mission Impossible 2, I think it's mainly when we're talking about the production chat, there are some slight uh, technical, difficulties. technical difficulties because... One of our amazing uh, chimps who's involved with controlling microphones hadn't plugged something in. That it's about 11 minutes of audio. Sounds a bit echoey, but apart from that, it's the usual high level of production you'd expect from us, would you say, George? We'll obviously cl clear it up as, as best we can, but just to, to bear with us for those first few minutes. Obviously, we're not film journalists. Uh, I mean, we do the usual housekeeping, George. In terms of mi mission briefing, uh, should you choose to accept it, so we are we are film lovers. We're, we're not uh, experts, but hopefully we'll teach you a few things you didn't know about these films. Uh, hopefully you'll be entertained by them. Inspired to go back and watch them again. Inspired, yeah, that's one of the main things that we're doing. We want people to share that enjoyment of these films, going back and rediscovering these, these films of our youth. But yeah, we will be delving into spoilers from, from the very off. There will be a host of bad impressions throughout, so you'll be uh, probably bored of our Dugray Scott uh, impersonations. Probably a bit confused We're by our... We're going to have to cut some of that out and just put Dugray in because, you know, there's, I think we... I think no, we... Nobody does Dugray like Dugray. Exactly. Um, we've got some Tony Hopkins in there. There might be some, a little bit of swearing as well, so apologies in advance. Um, but yeah, we, we hope you enjoy the show. But thank you for all your comments. Please keep sending them in, uh, keep sharing. But uh, I think we're about ready. Um, we've got the cassettes, they're about to explode. I'm recording on a set of Oakleys. Yep, and here it comes. Mission Impossibles 1. And 2. And 2, enjoy. That's an order. They knew, they knew we were coming. 
care how he did it. I want to know why he did it. You're worried about me. Why you survived? I'm sure we can find something I have that you need. These guys are trained to be ghosts. Let's not waste time chasing after him. Let's make him come to us. Find something that's personally important to him and you squeeze. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. So, George, Mission Impossible, Brian De Palma, Tom Cruise, 1996. How did we get this wonderful film? So it is uh, it's one of the uh, few franchises that uh, Paramount owns. So Paramount Pictures own the rights to the TV show. And um, so the TV show, I think, started in the 60s. And they were looking to make a film version for years and they couldn't come up with a suitable treatment. They actually started doing a film adaptation in the mid-80s, around 1986. Um, long before the cruiser was involved. But due to a writer's strike in 1988, it actually turned into a bit of a TV special movie. So a feature-length episode got the old band back together. So Peter Graves, Martin Landau and the like, uh, all back for, for one last mission. Tom Cruise had been a, a fan of the show since he was young and thought it would be a great idea for a film. And... Obviously, around uh, the mid-90s, Cruz was one of the highest paid uh, actors in Hollywood, but he was looking to move into uh, production and start up his own production company. And so he chose Mission Impossible as the first project with his production partner, Paula Wagner. With his name being attached, Paramount were convinced to put up a decent amount of budget, so $18 million for, for this film. That's not really that much. In today's money, it's, it's not. It's not. <laughs> no, but I mean, he has gone on to turn this into a very lucrative franchise. Um, a cash cow, so may say. Yeah, and I think we're not the only people who are excited about A, Tom Cruise, and B, the franchise itself. But it's been successful for a reason. He's constantly been trying to uh, reinvent the formula. And these two films kind of display that, aren't they? Because they're quite standalone. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a very interesting franchise because, if anything, they've I think you could argue that they've got better and better. Um, yeah, as as time's gone on, they've they, evolved and got better. Yeah, they've and understood more about what they should be. And I know people. Tom Cruise can be a bit marmite. You know, some people love him, some people hate him, but. You can't deny the man is one of the hardest working men in Hollywood. He is a consummate professional and he is dedicated to his craft of pushing what can be possible. To he's taken to cinema to new levels, stunts. He's given us things that we could... He's given us what people want to see. Like, like Retro Ramble, he aims to entertain. Yeah, and sometimes he occasionally misses. And maybe he shouldn't have sacked his agent. When was it? Just oh. before War of the Worlds? I what well, the, the the couch jumping. Well, it was the fact that things happened. You know, he changed his agent, and suddenly we had more of an in, we had more insider knowledge on his mm. private life, and suddenly people are judging him on that. And I think it's unfair. I look at the professional for what he gives. And judging by his work, not by his personal life, that's that's my thoughts on it. But yeah, I, I think he's a brilliant. You know, he's, he's a good actor. 
he's a dedicated, you know, I say he, you know, puts in the effort. Full disclaimer here, we don't care how nuts you think he is, we love him. Yeah. We love him for his films. We love him for his films. Yeah, he's, he's an entertainer and he does well. Yeah. So the film went into pre-production without a script. That's how things were done back in the 90s, George. Well, still, still done. I, well, I can't get my head around how films like, yeah, we, 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 didn't, we started without a script and then we had a script and then we realized we needed to do reshoots. Like, so what do they do? They shot scenes of the film and then said, write a script around that. Well, they essentially worked out key action sequences so um, Cruz brought on board uh, Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma is... Um, you may remember him from such films as... Well, he's... I only can think of the Untouchables one time. Uh, Brian De Palma is a... He's, he was part of the same uh, group of directors so known as the Movie Brats. So he was in the same sort of league. Spielberg, Spielberg, Lucas, Lucas um, Coppola, Scorsese. So they were all friends. They were all in film school together. So De Palma is, had quite a varied career in terms of he made uh, Carrie, the, the, yeah. the horror film. He did The Untouchables. Uh, he did Blowout. He did Snake Eyes with Nick Cage. Uh, I love after that this. Um, Such a weird film. So yeah, he's uh, he's he's done quite uh, a lot of different films. He's quite stylized. He's a lot of his camera work and stuff like that is very recognizable. He has you know certain stuff. Loves the soundtracks. There's like music. I feel like there's more music in his films than most. There, there's there's yeah. There's a lot of focus on music. There's a lot of. He has um, a lot of stuff in terms of point of view. So, you know, you talk about um, your love for Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes has a brilliant opening where is it an unbroken shot where it follows Nick Cage for about ten yeah, minutes. Absolutely, um, so something you know, something we've all wanted to do. It's 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 one what? take. You're following Nick Cage around. And what just on earth is he doing? Capturing the craziness. He's not afraid to admit that he borrows a lot from from famous directors uh, from the past. So he's a big Hitchcock fan, and Mission Impossible One is very is very much seen as a sort of a, a big homage to to Hitchcock. Um, so in terms of uh, who they brought on board to write the script, they had uh, David Kep, who we talked about in the Jurassic Park episode. So he was the writer of Jurassic Park, and also Robert Town. So Robert Town was a key scriptwriter in the 1970s. He wrote uh, Chinatown. That was probably wow. his, his, his biggest film. Um, but yeah, he did some rewrites on this and would, we'll also talk about him in uh, Mission Impossible 2. But yeah, they essentially, De Palma and Cruz came up with key action sequences and Kep and Town had to write the script around it. So initially there was going to be a more of a love triangle between Jim Phelps his wife, Claire, and Tom, uh, Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt, but apparently they cut that down in the, in the test screenings because, in De Palma's words, it took people out of the genre. But they left it in the trailer just to completely screw with our heads. Yes, there's, it's one of those uh, famous examples of seeing deleted scenes in a trailer and then go, hang on, that wasn't that. Romance, like uh, Rogue, Rogue One. Mm. There was a few scenes in that trailer that we saw over and over again, and they never turned up in the film. So, um, in terms of one of the early scripts, apparently featured the original TV cast. So, I say Peter Graves, who played uh, the head of the IMF. Um, but you may also remember Peter Graves from such films as Airplane. 
sure. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Peter Graves played uh, the head of the IMF team, the Impossible Missions Force, uh, Jim Phelps. And you also had Martin Landau playing, I think his name was Roland Hand in the show. But the original script had the original team killed off in the first act, making way for for Tom Cruise and his new team. But unsurprisingly, all the original actors weren't up for having their legendary characters killed off so unceremoniously. For the sake of making uh, storytelling. Story time, yeah. So that's the sort of um, the top line stuff. Shall we? Um, Should we just get into it? Yeah, let's get into I, it. I'm accepting this mission. Light, light the fuse. It's going to self destruct. Let's do it. The opening of, of Mission Impossible 1. Um, so I think, did we see this uh, as en famille? I think this was en famille. Yeah, I think we, we, I think we definitely, this is one of those films I think. I think it was definitely me, you, and Dad. I think we definitely. If not, the 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 ladies as well. Yeah, if they weren't out enjoying themselves. But yeah, this this was an event film. We're expecting a lot from it, and it delivered. And it well, it was a big summer. It was this, and uh, this is all same same summer as Independence Day. I remember I was doing work experience. (laughs) Wow! Yeah, Um, becoming a big boy. So um, yeah, I remember going to see this a big big summer event family movie. Um, I think we, I vaguely remember us like coming in quite late because the film starts quite abruptly and thinking, oh, we missed it. But well, like, what that first, because yeah, we did miss the credit, but it does open. It like opens, opens sudden. There's, yeah, there's into, no, halfway through a mission. Yeah. And the thing I love about this one in particular is that. Mission Impossible is obviously famous for its disguises. Face swapping. The the face swapping, the masks. But in this one, no matter what mask he's wearing, you can still tell it's Tom Cruise under that makeup. But the other thing I can get around is he looks so young. I mean, Tom Cruise is one of those people that is... Forever young. He is aged (laughs) phenomenally well, but he still looks so young. I mean, obviously this is, you know... It's almost 25 years old, but he's so fresh-faced. Yeah. <laughs> the thing, I've just looked at my notes and it just says, ooh, the things I'd like to do to Emmanuel Bear. Oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. So yes, she is a beautiful French actress, um, has amazing lips. And they really didn't tell her to tone down the accent. She didn't take any... If anything, anything play it up. They're like, we need you to sound as sexy French femme fatale as possible. Isn't the money. So I'd love to see the backstory between uh, how John Voight's character met Claire. Was it a mission? Was she being trafficked? Did he save her and then married her for a green card? Is that why she looks to Ethan? So, who knows? I mean, she, he's practically twice her age, but uh, maybe he's just a diamond in the sack. It is John Voight. The the thing I, uh, I really love in this, and I it definitely doesn't happen in the second one, but I love the TV style credits. So it shows yeah. you what you're basically going to see in that episode. Yeah. It shows like it's a really nice sort of cut together compilation, yeah, of of the mission. And I'm pretty sure I think they do do it in episodes. Maybe I think it's three three Ghost, Ghost Protocol. I think they do that. Yeah, but I don't know if they do it in the other ones because yeah, there is that. I know Ghost Protocol, they do that cool thing where he says, as they're breaking out of the prison, light the fuse. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a clever little sort of nod. Maybe there. it's the third one that they do that. 
Maybe. Maybe. Look, look it up. Look it up. Um, <laughs> I, I also made the point. We so said we get we see uh, Jim Phelps on his plane uh, in as uh, his. Uh, you know, trans- highly futuristic plane being offered cassettes, <laughs> offered cassettes, and I haven't even got CD-ROMs. Who in their right mind would think to ask? Would you consider the cinema of the Ukraine? I think it's code. <laughs> Sounds like code to me. Also dating this film quite horribly, Jim Phelps is perfectly acceptable to smoke on a plane to cover his uh, self-destructing yeah. tape. It's the only time I would consider smoking is when I'm burning cassettes on a plane. The, the handiness of having that mission briefing, also the one by Kittridge on the tape where it introduces Jim's wife, Claire. Also, running point will be Ethan Hunt. Running comms, Claire, your, your wife. wife. <laughs> Just to remind him who his wife is. I love that. It's a nice um, touch. But we also get further exposition. So we cut to Prague. And we get to meet the whole team. We get to know the gadgets. We get to know that there's mo- banter, v- banter. There's videos in the glasses. They've got earpieces, exploding gum that might come in useful. Yeah, it might be a plot device. At, At least. least once or twice. Look, if James Bond can reverse engineer, then so can we. But one of the the things I I love about this film, and it was, it was something that was put in place by De Palma, was um, he insists on shooting in Prague. And because at that time, Prague was not a, what hadn't been really seen in uh, many films. And ironically, Prague would go on to, in the sort of late 90s, early noughties, it became uh, quite a cheap location. Destination, for, yeah. for, for people to, to film in, in terms of the architecture and stuff like that. You've been to Prague as well, haven't you? Yeah, I've been to the Charles Bridge. I've, had, I've drunk the beer, I've forgotten how to get home because the beer is cheap, but no, it's a beautiful city. Oh, it's, it's, it's an amazing city. And uh, I actually remember when I went there, I went there with uh, one of my good mates from uni and I basically dragged him round, basically took him on a step-by-step tour of the locations of Mission Impossible. It's like, here's where the car blows up and this is when Tom Cruise is running along the bridge. So, um, yeah, apologies to, to Ant, uh, you know, many years later. George, S- sorry we, for dragging you around. Could we please go somewhere that wasn't in the first Mission Impossible film? Yeah, I think you just kept asking, can we go for a drink yet? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I just need you to jump off this bridge and then I'm going to blow up this aquarium and then we can go for dinner. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we get, yeah, we get to meet the team uh, that are shortly going to be killed off. So Emilio Estevez, he's wow, in it. he's in this film. Kristen Scott Thomas, she's in it. The other girl, she's in it. Yeah, she's not um, in it very long. <laughs> we also get the some some great foreshadowing of Jim Phelps staying in the Draco Hotel, Chicago. And I also thought when being taken through, there basically the mission is to stop the the knock list, the, the the list of all the secret agents' real names falling into the wrong hands. And I thought, isn't this the plot of Skyfall that yeah, they pretty kind of much forget is. about halfway through? Yeah, quite a. I think this goes back to the seventies. They must probably. have been, when the spies. There's the identities, and I think the biggest risk is those identities being revealed. Yeah. It's also in um, Atomic Blonde. It's a big part of the plot in that. I still have not seen that. About I need to watch that film. There is an amazing scene that mm. you need to see. 
Um, so we have. Um, it's, not, say, it's not an action scene. So we then we, we cut to. <laughs> we we it's a scene involving two women. To to look up the key <laughs> plot points on IMDb for Atomic Blonde. Yeah, they're, they're quite amusing. You will not be disappointed. Um, Getting back to Mission Impossible. So we're on the mission, right? Uh, we're at the embassy, the the ambassador's ball. Yeah, um, not Tom, a Ferrero Rocher in sight. Uh, Tom Cruise is impersonating a man that looks, looks and sounds like lot, an like, older version of Tom Cruise. Yeah. But in true De Palma signature, this whole sequence, well, of the Ambassador's Ball is from Tom Cruise's point of view. So we don't actually see Tom Cruise as the Texas or Southern Ambassador yeah. type fella until they are doing the, the whole hacking, ID, scanning type thing. I've, I've got my notes here. There's the really sort of sleight of hand moment where Kristen Scott Thomas um, goes to spray her perfume, but sprays, it's actually a tracking spray that she sprays on the mole's head. And it just reminds me of the bit in Dumb and Dumber when Jim Carrey keeps missing his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, that's really obvious. She's clearly not spraying perfume on herself. But anyway, it works. It works in the film. So yeah, it's, it's a great sequence. I mean, for me, I have a lot of love for this film. I was, you know, uh, in, I was around, uh, well, I would have been, yeah 13 at the time it came out and it was being a film geek it was one of the first uh cds i bought i so i bought the, the soundtrack oh, the soundtrack i bought the soundtrack on cd and it was a do mixture. you still have that soundtrack george uh, a very tragic story no i i left it in our old uh pc that was recycled it was still in the deep disc drive whoever got that pc they got themselves a free album it's a great album it's great not only have you got danny elfman's uh, amazing score orchestral score um you had it was one of those soundtrack albums that has songs that may have been inspired by by the film film but didn't necessarily that may have been written performed and recorded before the film (laughs) that may have actually played at the credits or not at all yeah so it had had some uh some good bands on there so there was uh massive attack and jarvis cocker or or pulp were on there cranberries so yeah i had i had some good pop hits and obviously it had the uh, remixed uh, Mission Impossible theme by uh, the guys from U2 that aren't Bono or The Edge. <laughs> <laughs> the Edge is fine. But whoever <laughs> who, whoever bought that PC from oh. from our dad, you you got it. You got a bit. You got you a nine ninety nine soundtrack chucked in for free. I, th- I think I even paid fifteen quid for it in HMV on, on Northumberland Street. So. The I'm mission up. is going fine. The mission is going until fine until it's not. I I put in my notes how is it so easy to get the knock list in Prague, but then obviously it's part of the setup, so that's why it's so easy. But a few things. Why is the lift shaft got retractable spikes? No. Why has the lift shaft got impaling and impaling impaling device? Why do they kill off Emilio Estevez? I really liked him. Look, Young Guns Two wasn't received very well. So they were like, but that was the shock death. Yeah, no, and that's it. You can obviously see that anything's up for grabs. You can see where that genesis came from of that original idea to kill off the original cast and bring in new team is that shock of hey this is this big starring cast or, or, or at least a few famous people we're going to kill them off and it, it was it was a real in the age but before they do, they spoilers kill, they kill everyone apart from Tom Cruise and then obviously you find out 
a few people survived, whatever. But they do actually. It is like, mm. what's what's he going to do? Ethan Hunt's going to die. Sorry, wrong wrong partridge impression. Um, but one thing I'm wondering, and I, I don't know if I'm overthinking it, but was it always part of of Jim Phelps's plan to frame Ethan Hunt? Uh, yeah. Or I, was it? Or did he genuinely think? Did he know it was a mole hunt? This, no, but I think this goes. This, back. this is why it falls. Does it fall apart if I overthink about it? That. Well, this did could, this did could, he always know it was a mole hunt? Did he know that he would need to get Ethan framed so Ethan would be dedicated enough to steal the knock list? No, I think this goes back to that. Well, if you look at the comment he makes at the end, when he, well, we'll get we'll get to that. But I think that the thing we talked about that was removed from the trailer, the fact that something's happened between Claire and Ethan. Mm. It's re- revenge. I think that's why he sets up Ethan. Right. For- because one, it clears him. Yeah. And two, it's revenge. revenge. So I think if something has happened between Ethan and Claire, it happens before, in between the first yeah. scene that it opens on and this mission. But Jim, but it's taken out. Jim before. genuinely thinks he's got the knock list this time. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, it won't happen again. I yeah. I, I think obviously being a De Palma film, it's a really well shot film. I love the the cinematography, the real moodiness, the cloudy streets, uh, you know, the misty sort of fogginess of Prague and stuff like that. It feels like it made me want to go to Prague, and I have done since. At least I think I've been there twice. Yeah. It, it feels proper sort of cloak and dagger. Then we're obviously introduced to Kittredge, who's the head of the the IMF. Great bad guy. Um, yeah, he's. Um, We've not seen him in many other. I think he's in Jack Ryan, but my theory is that he works for the CIA as just as a Hollywood actor. He's very good in the bureaucratic type roles. Yeah. Um, I, I think is yeah he's he's great he's a great foil to Tom Cruise. He's got some very good dialogue in this um, that we're probably going to either chuck in or do impressions of later on. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. This is your mission, should you choose to accept it. Should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. Good luck, Jim. But yeah, you know, you're saying it like the way it frames Prague. I really want to go back there. And it really does like it captures the city really well and makes it look like it's a a lovely place and then the, it all goes it all goes wrong It'll, and you see a lot of things happen very quickly the team will get picked off and it's some very good action and you, you're left wondering what what's going on you know why is this it unfolds very quickly yeah and I just love this there's lots of little bits in this like um, I love the bit when he goes back to the safe house and he does the thing where he breaks the light bulb in his jacket yeah, and, and then shakes all the glass. Yeah, to, to stop anyone, you know, so or you'll hear, hear somebody coming. Yeah. I, I do that whenever I stay in a hotel from now on. <laughs> Nobody follows me, however, so perhaps it's just vandalism. Uh, so Ethan's back at the place. He's trying to work out where it's all gone wrong. And we get our first audio, audio flashback yeah. of... Drake Hotel, Chicago. No, no, no. It said, uh, was it the... A buyer called Max. Max, job 314. Yeah. So Tom Cruise does some digging on the internet with Fires a capital a- I. Fires up AOL. Um, he goes into chat groups. Goes into Alta Vista. He starts searching. I, I was laughing at the simplicity of it. He just starts searching max.com. Yeah. Um, the Book of Job discussion group. Sounds pretty niche. But then we find out there's 
book of Job discussion groups for every country. Yeah, because obviously the internet isn't international yet. No, no. <laughs> the other thing I noticed in this scene, because you've got Tom Cruise typing away and he's in this little wife beater, he's actually quite skinny in this film. Yeah, he's not, he's not bulked up like he is in the others. Mm. Emmanuel Bear, uh, Cl- Jim's wife, Claire, um, <laughs> turns up uh, back from the dead. I've made a note here, I think 80% of her acting is in her lips. But God, yeah. I really don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> I've got, yeah, I don't know. We, we're we not really sort of, I don't think the internet works that way that he pretends to be Job and then he gets a message back for Job. I don't know. How, from Job. From Job. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very weird. One thing I forgot about. It takes the plot forward. It, it does take the plot forward. So, because he goes to meet Max, the arms dealer, but first he has to meet her henchman who is most amazing Vidal Sassoon he looks like he's just stepped out of a salon the guy with the long hair or in his case he's just stepped out of Sirlon former (laughs) do you you not recognise him isn't he from Die Hard he is from Die Hard but he's also from one of our other favourite films so he's uh, he is the stupid policeman from Die Hard yeah but he is also He's not um, from uh, the a money, man, a money man pit. No, it's has not. Has exploding milk bottles. It's the it's the milkman from the living. It's Necros, the the uh, the blonde assassin. In typical Bond tradition, yes, the blonde assassin from Living Daylights is uh, is the point man for for Max the arms dealer. We get some uh, more point of view of of Ethan Hunt putting on his um, boyish good looks. Charming, yeah. charming Max. Yes, we get to see the amazing uh, British actress Vanessa Redgrave, who is devouring the dialogue, my dear boy. Oh, the it's things like a, I could do to you, dear boy. It's like a warm blanket of anonymity. Um, no, she's great. She's, he's up for it, though. Yeah, he, he would do anything for he, the mission. He knows what he's doing. But there's still, he's still very much... This is something I felt when I watched this film. There's a big change in the second film. He's much more, which we'll get to. He's much. He's a different type of character. And this is still very much the Tom Cruise of the charmer. Gun. It's the charmer. It's the grin. Yeah, that ridiculous grin. Grinning is, like an idiot. You know, it's still very much. He's the playful. He's as you're saying, boyish, young. Yeah. It's 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 when he's going through this. Uh, and he's a chancer in this, and I think he's yeah. less of a chancer in in the in mission two. Yeah. But then we get the so they test the the knock list, which is definitely bugged. The the CIA, the ma- the men in white coats turn up. But I love this that they're, they're covering all the exits um, in this amazing apartment building. The guys are ready like guns on the door, but there's the little old lady still hoovering around them. That's yeah. a bit I've never noticed. No, it's a great little touch. You've got a Kittredge turns up with Barnes. Barnes, who is also another typecast actor. I think that guy is actually like Movie. ex-military. He was like a military advisor that's turned up in films now. And I think that's why he's there. He's um, always a general. We get to see, uh, so yeah, Tom Cruise get, gets away, it slips through uh, Kittredge's fingers, but Kittredge has a plan. You find a pressure point and you squeeze. Yeah. But Tom Cruise gets a, a, a team together. Luther, 
the amazing Marcellus Wallace from Pulp Fiction. For the last time, I am not Mr. T. Thing Reigns. Thing Reigns. We uh, love him. Who was actually one of the few things that is, he's been in everyone. Yeah, he's you know, consistent. He's, he's, he's one of the few consistent things across the entire series. Known as uh, the Net Ranger, apparently, is one of his nicknames. Great names. But he's a very tech person. I mean, it shows like how forward thinking this film is because Luther's really into the, you know, he wants the latest tech. I'm talking about thinking machine laptops. Yeah, I'm talking about four point access cabling. He asks for a thinking machine laptops. I'm talking about the 686 prototypes with the artificial intelligence risk chip. (laughs) <laughs> which is like less less processing power than the first iPad is like yeah <laughs> than my Casio watch yeah but then we, we quickly jump into the impossible mission the, the the Langley job yeah which is a great mission and they got that whole this felt to me this was the classic sort of mission impossible thing where everyone's doing something they're they're poisoning sorry I mean drugging someone there's a lot of tension because the guy's going in and out of the room it's it's and when it's explained by Mr. T sorry I mean Ving Rhames when Ving Rhames presents the security system it seems could I say impregnable it does seem like there is no way yeah. to get in well that's again it's another I think it's another sort of stylistic trick trope of uh, of De Palma we get to see Ethan talking about how impenetrable the system is and we're while, seeing it. while they're breaking in yeah, yeah we're seeing the the guy go in we're seeing it's temperature sensitive it's sound sensitive it's mm-hmm. one of the most highly guarded things I still can't get my head around how they regulate temperature he has a, a thing that has temperature on it but it doesn't really explain how he's managed to keep the temperature well, the same also the guy who works in there what happens if he gets a cold or he has a curry. No, no, but... <laughs> or he's wearing an extra jumper and he's sweating a bit. No, but the guy who's working yeah. there, his body temperature will be... Okay, maybe it's only fluctuating a couple of degrees, but, but the, what the, the, the limit that they put in this film is that if the temperature fluctuates, yeah. isn't it like half a degree? Or, or something like... Uh, it's no, so ridiculous. And I think my temperature, you know, it's like Emmanuel Bear walks in the room, you know... Have She's smoking, your, huh? I've got your reports. There'll, there'll be alarms going off. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a bit tight around the collar. No, but I mean, I think it's dramatic license. Mm-hmm. It works well. I, but it, I especially like the lasers in the air vents. <laughs> Not enough lasers in air vents. <laughs> uh, that doesn't stop. It's still got rats in the yeah. air vents. Um, but yeah, we, we've forgot to mention uh, Jean Renault, brilliant actor, the guy from from Leon uh, and many other films, but um, he's he's good at this being very French. Yeah, he's uh, obviously been picked up. This is before Leon, after after Leon. I think Leon's 95. Yeah, yeah, he gets noticed. Oh, so it's before. No, no, it's 96, so this, uh, this is after Leon. All right, yeah, so I thought it was just 95, yeah. So, um, but he's obviously uh, an accomplished French actor before he got noticed by mm-hmm. Hollywood. And, um, yeah, he does bring a certain gravitas. Yeah, he's, he's good in this. He's very grouchy and he's a bit menacing. Um, Shows a slightly different range to what you see in Leon. Yeah, yeah. No, he's no, he's great in this. And, yeah, this, this is a brilliant sequence the the tension in it the, the fact it's basically soundless in terms of because they can't break the sound barrier yeah. it's a very done in silence you know as you said you know um de palma's very good at how he uses 
sound and his soundtracks and yeah I've already declared my love for for Danny Elfman's soundtrack it's really sort of bombastic and 60s-esque and yeah but the way they get in the way they get out the fact that they complete the mission but they almost don't complete mission with the knife falling and stuff no, but they like get, that they get that's what I mean they get yeah. caught so they, they complete the mission but they don't complete it anonymously yeah and uh, what does Kittredge say Kittredge says one of my favourite quotes of, of any film when, when, somebody says it, when somebody screws up at work I do sometimes say this where he's like I want him on a post in Siberia. I want that guy manning an outpost in Alaska by the end of the day. Mail him his clothes. I'm going to say that to somebody, even if it's... I I do sometimes say that when somebody screws up at work. But they quickly, again, were globe-hotting? Globe-trotting without an Indiana... I should say globe-hopping, but globe-trotting. Globe-trotting, but without the use, the careful visual aid of an Indiana Jones man. So we're in London, because we know this because we see the tube. Um, and we also and see the, the gherkin hadn't been built yet so we, we see to... the tube and then we he's in a pub where Alan Shearer scores for Blackburn yeah yeah, yeah. in the background yeah we get Alan Shearer's goal I was like okay yeah, so we hasn't been the, sold we're definitely in the 90s haven't been sold to Newcastle yet um, there's a whole bit of um, and apparently this was no uh, trickery but where Tom Cruise is doing the sleight of hand with the disc the floppy disc apparently yeah. that was all done for real where he's like yeah. flipping it between hands and stuff like that we get some more audio flashback of Drake, Drake Hotel, Hotel in Chicago. Chicago. Ethan. Where, where the penny drops. So Jim Phelps reappears. And then this this really confused me the first time I watched it. And again, I think this is a... a when he's trying to work thing. out what's happened. So yeah, you've got Ian Hunt. Sorry, Ian. I, Ian, Ian Hunt. Hunt. His <laughs> lesser known brother. Oh, but speaking of which, when it talks about his um, his family get arrested, his mother is Margaret Ethan Hunt. Yeah. Why is her middle Just name Just to Ethan? reinforce the fact that it's his mother. Oh, okay. Now, when Ethan uh, is, um, he's, yeah, he's trying to work it out. He's saying one thing, but he's thinking another. So he's saying, oh yeah, it was Kitcher all along, but in his head, he knows it was good. Jim. It was Jim. No, but it's De Palma's way of like showing, getting you inside it's, his head. Cause it's, and it's that perspective. It's that reli- unreliable it narrator. You, it was you all along. But and, then oh, he's no, thinking, maybe it was Claire. Oh no, maybe you could have done no, it. Couldn't yeah. have been Claire because she's hot. Yeah. Yeah, we've got the the Jim's excuse. You know, no more cold war. You wake up and the president of the United States has run the country without your say so. But then there's the whole. Again, I think Jim's plan falls together. Why would why would Kittredge steal the Noglist? It would surely be too easy for him to do. Yeah, but he's no. He's, he, I think he's disrespecting Ethan's ability to work out what's going uh, on. Okay. He's trying to divert blame, and I think that's why it's very obvious to uh, Ethan yeah. that it was Jim all along. So he hatches his own plan. So, so so Ethan goes back to the safe house. He sees smoking hot Emmanuel Bear. Does something with her that we don't see. She starts kissing his hand and then fade out. We don't need to worry about the rest. Yeah, what's she doing? She's just kissing his hand. It's what colleagues do. I remember times when I've had a hard time at work and I just hold my hand out and a colleague takes it, strokes it and starts Mm. kissing it and then we just go back to our normal day. You don't do that? So, Charlie, the TGV, (laughs) the Eurostar, you're familiar with it. I am familiar with it. You're familiar with it. You travelled on it. We are recording from... We are recording from uh, Eurostar. From from Gay Paris. Yeah. No, um, in in true meta podcasting slash reviewing, I watched this film 
on the Eurostar. Traveling towards towards the channel. Yeah, trying like trying were. to upload the knocklist. Actually, just trying to watch this film. Trying to stream the well, film before you hit the tunnel. While <laughs> singing a Danny Elfman soundtrack to myself, <laughs> to the delight of all my other passengers. <laughs> it was all going well until you got out of that pocket projector. Yeah, like this is ninety six. Uh, Seriously, ni- dates itself. Ni- they have. I noticed that the the phone they were using was the Philips uh, mobile phone that. It was your first mobile phone that you passed, handed down to me, which was my first phone. Do you remember that? Was that the BT Internet one? Yes, the BT Internet Philips phone that it didn't have Snake, but it had Birthday Predictor on it, which just gave you a bunch of emojis. Yeah. Um, So that's they're using that as a signal blocker, but trying to download. I mean. It's an Excel file, right? I mean, almost 25 years later, me trying to get decent Wi-Fi signal on the train is a near impossibility. I don't know how they were trying to upload this this file on the TGV. No, it was it was it was back then. This would have been. Were they using WAP? This is pre-WAP. This is 2G, but it was still. What he's actually doing is he's using the the. Do you remember the phones that came with infrared on them? Yes. So he's actually he's he's sending an infrared tethering. Yeah, he's tethering. I think he's just interrupting the signal. But then if, starts, if you've just tuned in, you're down to the 1996 mobile chat podcast. We're talking about mobular cellular telecommunication devices tethering on pre-WAP devices. Yeah. So anyway, I won't bore you with the technology, but it was it was less shit than it is today, but not by a long <laughs> shot. But now the point I want to make about this knock list: what are we talking about? A bloody X file or are there photos I think there's, there's, there's I guess that's why well. it's a large and yeah. it's encrypted and they need to upload it before they enter the channel okay we can take our glasses off yeah. now so anyway um, there's a reason it's so, so so Ethan is in true sort of misdirection Claire thinks she's speaking to Jim yeah. but it's not Jim where's the money where's the money Jim it's actually Ethan wearing a mask but he doesn't have a voice chip it's, we haven't advanced that we're not like the second one he's disguised as Jim is that how he got to Claire the first time round he dressed up as Jim anyway surprise <laughs> it's me Ethan <laughs> damn Gideons oh yeah I, I've, I've made the note of he goes Having tasted the goods, Ethan, I knew I could count on so, something to do. Thou like, shalt not covet another man's wife. Yeah, it's a little but, bit. But but John, I mean, sorry, uh, what's he called in this? This guy, uh, Jim. Jim. Um, that scene's been cut from the film. Shut up. We're still, I'm still. I, I like this dialogue. I'm leaving it in. Yeah, it's it's very weird. He's using his wife. It's as, like she uh, only kissed my hand. Yeah, <laughs> and then it faded out. Um, yeah, I've got it in my note. Why? Why does he? He quickly kills Claire. Like when Ethan goes for the gun, but he shoots her first. So is it he's so pissed off that she's done the dirty with Ethan? I think he said to her he, like he, years he, ago, the one thing that you can never do is sleep with whoever you want. But if I see you kissing the hand of another colleague, I'm going to fucking kill you. Even if he's dressed as me. Yeah, I'm going to kill you. I think I, I really like, I think it's still a good reveal where Cruz does the thing where he takes the glasses out and he slowly puts them on and then it reveals that you know Kittredge is in on it but I like the timing the fact that Kittredge is just tuning in as well he just <laughs> he just knows to look that's the right he just imagine the whole just cuts back to Kittredge got nothing but watch. white snow here nothing 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 nothing, uh, nothing. Well, just get I, rid of it why have I been given this watch <laughs> we then get into one of the, the the key stunts I mean other than the uh 
the Langley breakout. So apparently for this train stunt, it was Tom Cruise always wanted to to do this stunt. This was like, uh, you know, before the script was written, this is like he had this this idea that he wanted to do. So I'm not insane. Not, not insane. <laughs> I so. just want to blow up a helicopter and land on a, on a train. Uh, so the cruiser, being the cruiser, um, wanted it to look as real as possible. So um, they managed to source a, um, a, a skydiving simulator. So, you know, one of those giant fans. One of the jets that keep you in the air. Yeah, so it can produce winds of up to 140 miles an hour. Um, and he managed, was the, there was only one machine available in Europe, which they managed to source. So, because he wanted it, the, the wind effects to be so powerful, you could see basically his distorting his face yeah obviously they did that all like on a set like with with green screen um, our friends at uh, the guys the amazing guys at ilm and industrial light and magic did the special effects in terms of the backdrop but they actually did uh, all the exterior shots for the train was on the glasgow southwestern line fact fans train spotters but yeah i think it, it's a cracking action set piece isn't it where you can see they're like being blown down the train the, the fact that like yeah the, you, you, well, they you take get it, that sense of realism in it well and well, yeah I said they take it seriously it's not like they're just climbing down a train but they're saying the train's going so bloody fast they're actually attached to the train there's a plan there's a pickup yeah and he obviously gets in the way is the I'm pretty sure the the channel the the channel channel wasn't finished when this film came out it was still being built I Is think that, you're right because you go into individual tunnels there isn't a tunnel where you you pass another train is there I'm pretty sure there's an in and an out. It's dark. I can't it's tell. Dark, dark. So you, I'm not. I'm not normally driving. No, that, that's true. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great set piece. You've got the the chopper explosion, which was spoiled in the trailer because it's the money shot. Effectively, yeah. you didn't know this until you saw the film. Yeah, but it's pretty much even down to the point where you're seeing the point of the blades is close to his neck. Yeah, still um, a great scene. But again, great scene. You've got the exploding chewing gum. You've got Danny Elfman's amazing score. And it's all all right. They've, he saved the day. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, the whirlwind tour of, of MI1. Great film. It has aged well. It's still a good spy flick. It's a great romp. It's a, you know, it's... It's, it's I not think too it's, much action. I think it's, yeah, the, some people said the plot's a little bit confusing, but I think once, you know, you've seen it a few times, it makes perfect sense. It's not that confusing. I think it's a little bit... There's a bit of misdirection, but I think that's obviously intended on De Palma's. De Palma doesn't want it to be too easy. He wants you to think yeah. a little bit. Shall we go into Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda? Yeah, let's do it. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. For this one, I haven't got anything, obviously, because Cruz was involved from the early on, he was obviously always going to be the the point man. But uh, Ethan Hunt is, as far as I know, he's um, invented for the film series. He wasn't in the original series. But apparently for, for Jim Phelps, once Peter Graves, you remember him. Joey! the gymnasium once he didn't want to be part of it they were considering Al Pacino oh, Ethan <laughs> Michael Douglas why does everyone want to sleep with my wife <laughs> and Robert Redford which interesting he kind of plays a similar role in Captain America Winter Soldier yeah Winter Soldier is very much the Jim Phelps sort of role. Um, so yeah that, that, that could have been in you know all solid choices I mean, part of me wants Pacino to be in that role just so he could shout at Tom Cruise. 
Yeah, exactly. I guess, but you could see him in any of the Mission Possibles. You know, they've got obviously they've replaced that guy in each of the films and each guy is very interesting but yeah any big actor um, so yeah just in terms of I don't know if it's worth mentioning but this was the third biggest film of 1996 I say Independence Day was the biggest hit that was of, the July 4th release of, of the year followed by Disaster CGI Fest Twister but what was in fourth place of 1996 surprise me Retro Ramble favourite, The Rock. Oh, of course, of course. What a film. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is Mission Impossible 1. Um, we're just going to put in another cassette and listen to our next mission. And we're going to delve into Mission Impossible 2. Well, Mr Hunt, I don't quite know where to begin. You know no. Should I? She's got no training for this kind of thing. To go to bed with a man alive, I mean, she's a woman. She's got all the training she needs. I don't think I can do it. I mean, it'll be difficult. Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult to be a walk in the park for you. You gotta be kidding. And so with that first mission out of the way, it's time to move on to Mission Impossible 2. I'm pretty sure this has always been marked as MI2. Yeah, for expediency. Nobody has any time. It's the late 90s. Strangely enough, I mean, this film is, is pretty much panned. It doesn't, it seems like, it feels like you and I are... Are the only people who love this film. Yeah. We saw it twice in its opening uh, weekend. Yeah. Warts and all, we, 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 I think we were obviously the, the target age, but we, we loved it. I mean, so much so, yeah, we went and saw it, went and saw it a second time that weekend when we were drunk, but that's, yeah. that's a different story altogether. But yeah, this was the yeah, highest grossing film of 2000. Yeah, so uh, for all the hate, it still performed very well. Yeah. And it made half a billion. Yeah, half a billion. And Which back in 2000, 18 years ago, I, I guess you could argue that, that today that would be a billion, a billion dollar film. Easily, easily. Yeah. Whilst these films are, well, up until Mission Impossible Fallout, they've always had a, a different director with each instalment. And that's kind of been a stylistic choice of producer and star Tom Cruise that he wanted a diff- each film to feel refresh to, yeah. Yeah, but to feel have, a, have its own style but originally he, he offered it to Brian De Palma to return to do mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 2 but he uh, he declined and then Oliver Stone who uh, Cruise had worked with on Born on the 4th of July mm-hmm. was attached and apparently wrote a treatment, but then he backed out basically scheduling conflicts. So Cruz is working on Eyes Wide Shut for Stanley Kubrick and that overran. So Oliver Stone dropped out and then they approached the so hot back then, John Woo from obviously from, we did one of our first podcasts, one of our favorite guilty pleasures, Face, Face Off. Off. So yeah. If you haven't seen a John Woo film, it's those ones where the protagonist is normally jumping through the air. Sideways. Sideways, firing off two revolvers at with, the same time. With a dove in the background. Yeah. They're brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So John Woo is a, a Hong Kong action director. He's done some great action films. He's very good at his, you know, gun choreography. It's almost athletic in terms of it's very stylized and 
I think it's quite clear that it's very good at rivalries as well. Yes. Like having a good, strong yin, yin and a yang, and that's very much enforced in this film. Yeah, and there is there's quite a lot of you can see why Wu was attached to it in terms of the themes, the fact that like Face Off, they are literally swapping faces in this a little bit too much in some aspects. Yeah, because they swap faces at least twice, don't they? At least um, with each other. Yeah. So uh, this was Wu's next theatrical release following Face Off, but between Face Off and this, he did a straight-to-TV action film with Dolph Lundgren known as Blackjack, which has the amazing uh, concept of Dolph Lundgren being an assassin that has a phobia of the colour white. No, but he's impregnable to everything. He's really strong. He's an assassin. The only thing that he can be stopped by is that he has a phobia of white. And we haven't seen all of that film, but I've, I remember watching a scene. I'm pretty sure you were We watched me. it together, yeah. And they're just out of pure coincidence there happens to be a shootout in a milk factory it's the, it's the third act it's like the, show, the showdown is in a milk factory and there's milk everywhere and Dolph Lundgren just falls to his knees and just starts screaming it's um yeah check it out blackjack or don't it's oh, terrible yeah um <laughs> so I uh, I looked at the DVD of this and uh it was obviously one of the first sort of DVDs to come out because it was boasting it was the DVD was compatible with a Playstation 2 I remember this though it was like this and X Men are like my first DVDs I ever owned. Oh yeah, and yeah. it had exhaustive special features. It has like a 13 minutes behind the scenes. Had the comedy stuff from Ben Stiller. Yeah, and at least one trailer and a yeah. music video. Yeah. So it was really, you know, it was playing up to the DVD special features. But got some interesting insights from uh, from the behind the scenes doc. So in, in John Woo's words, he always wanted to make a romantic action adventure film. Right. <laughs> okay. Which which this is. Yeah. I'd say it's probably the thing why people level their sights to this film and say it isn't good is because there is some stylistic decisions made by John Woo. The love story is crucial to certain character arcs. The plot's all over the place. Yeah. Um, it's hammy, but it's wonderfully hammy. It's wonderfully hammy. Um, so, yeah, I like the first one. The, the Cruise and, and Woo had ideas of what action sequences they want to include so uh crews want to include the the rock climbing stunt at the start that has no semblance on the plot That's whatsoever very james bond cold open yeah brilliant stunt the fact that he was doing all those stunts himself um he, there and he was, has buffed up since the last film he's definitely buffed Been up eating his crusts yeah um <laughs> But there was an original script written by uh, Ronald D. Moore and Branham Braga. And interestingly, like Ron, I, I noticed, uh, recognised Ronald D. Moore's name because he has gone on to, he wrote um, for Star Trek and he basically wrote and produced the very successful re, Redux redo of Battlestar Galactica. Uh, that did and, very well. And he has a series on Amazon at the moment called Outlander. So he's very successful in TV. So he did the original pass on it and he, he gets story credit on this, but they, they brought back Robert Town, who had done a lot of re-edits on the first Mission Impossible to sort of spruce up the dialogue. And according to Cruz and the behind the scenes, the writing of this film, it's, it's so good. So good. I can just imagine him saying that. <laughs> there are some good lines in this. Yes, there are s some very 
good one-liners, and most of them taken by the brilliant Sir Anthony Hopkins. Watch out, am I just start shouting? You're sorry, I'm sorry. Putting the sense. So yeah, there, um, there is some, you know, there, there, whilst the, the plot is a bit over the, the place, the, the, it does, there is some good dialogue in this film. In terms of casting, they were after, I, I think both Wu and Cruz were after an, an old old-fashioned sort of approach and they were after they wanted as I say a romantic element because the one that was we've talked about in Mission Impossible 1 they, they cut out the whole romance subplot but they wanted to bring the, the romance to the forefront in this one so they wanted somebody with an Audrey Hepburn type quality and uh, it was actually Nicole Kidman uh, Tom Cruise's wife at the time that suggested uh, Tandy Newton who is now um, a big star well big big star and one of the best things in the, the Westworld series and she's uh, in Han Solo briefly she's yes that, that is true she's very briefly in, in Han Solo so she was cast actually before work on the script began. So that was actually interesting to see that, you know, they were desperate to get her. But they were picking elements before finishing the script. What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, apparently through, through my research, this is also a loose remake of Hitchcock's film from 1946 with Cary Grant called Notorious, which is about trying to sort of entrap a, a Nazi war criminal. So a woman is forced to sort of go back and, and spy on him. But bizarrely, um, something I hadn't really noticed before that this film shares a lot of similarities with uh, Goldeneye. So in terms of you have the car chase uh, around the mountains with yep. the guy and the girl, you have a rogue agent against our hero um, that's holding a, a city ransom for, for profit. Yeah, just for money. Yeah. Yeah, so in terms of behind the scenes, there was a little bit of drama in terms of that originally they had the the DOP, the, the cinematographer, was Andrew Lesney, and he went on to be the cinematographer for all of uh, Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings films. So he's, you know, um, a very acclaimed uh, cinematographer, but he left after a month due to, I'm doing air quotes, stylistic differences with John Woo. Well, he's been a bit of a dick. Apparently <laughs> so. And according to uh, IMDb, apparently John Woo's cut, original cut of the film was three and a half hours long. Yeah, if anybody has a copy of that original cut, George and I really need to see. Yeah, because there's, there's no deleted scenes on, on the DVD. Um, but apparently the studio said the film had to be uh, no more than two hours. So apparently that explains why there's so many plot holes and con continuity errors. And the they cut, cut they cut out a few yeah. things. Being a John Woo film as well, apparently it was a lot more originally graphic, so they've cut down a lot of the the action and the violence. And uh, Stuart Baird did a lot of uncredited re-editing on this film to to sort of make it in sense. And uh, we talked about Stuart Baird previously doing again uncredited re-editing on the messy shambles that seems to have a lot of love, Tango and Cash. What a film! What a film! So, shall we get into the the main film? Dum 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 ding 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 ding. Yeah, so we watched this on its opening weekend. We then went out on a big night out and ended up in the cinema again because our night was cut short. And we watched this, shall we say, when we were we were well oiled. The second highly time. suggestible. Yeah, and so I think that's probably why we have a lot of. Uh, love for this film, but uh, yeah, I love the opening. 
Uh, I love that. I love. You wouldn't get away with that today. We talk about this. This is probably one of the last action films involving hijacking and terrorism before September 11th. Yes. So I mean, yeah. you have this opening scene taken and that missing Malaysian Airlines flight as well. Yeah. About, like something crashing in the mountains. Yeah. It's a bit, little bit too close to the bone. Yeah. You wouldn't get away with that today. We have a favourite, a running joke between Charlie and I as actors that play the same roles, the, the stereotypes as we call them. And there's this stars the guy. He's He's not called Dimitri, but he's the Russian scientist. He's in Snatch. He's he even in this... turns up in Downton Abbey as a Russian guy. Can yeah. you believe that? <laughs> so the guy who keeps calling Tom Cruise Dimitri, the the even... man that creates the Bellerophon Chimera and Bellerophon and Bellerophon yeah. so yeah he always he plays he is Rent a Russian Rent a Rusky Rent a Rusky but we, lo- we love him he's actually a very decent actor um, he's got certain presence and yeah he's he's had a very good career since the 90s yeah he's, oh, he always crops up uh, Batman Begins as well that's a nice cut yeah exactly yeah just a small role from there yeah. so yeah he's great and he's in this film quite a bit even though he's killed off in the first opening scene yes, he's on stop, video doesn't stop Tom Cruise wearing his face exactly yeah I, again this sort of I think this is sort of down to writing around action set pieces it's a bit confusing because he's it's implied that him and Tom Cruise have a history have history but he only knows Tom Cruise as Dimitri and why has Tom Cruise been a friend of him for so long when he's like a biochemical scientist maybe he was not on a mission but, but no, he was obviously running him it was obviously connected to something else but it's never really explained um, <laughs> but uh, you are not Dimitri and we get to see evil Tom Cruise evil Tom Cruise because Tom is acting as like Tom we need you to look like a bad guy and there's something about it's like and how do we know he's evil because got rock music dun 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 yeah and also he's not doing nice things he's, he's, he's hurting people he's, he's hurting people but would you know it it's actually do Scott in disguise the first of many many face swaps in this film yeah a, they go a bit nuts with face swapping in this film a little bit too carried away but it does look good the CGI still holds up today and the thing I like about this and I think they take this on for the other films is the uh, the microchip voice adapter thing the, the across the it's larynx it's basically like a high tech plaster yeah. or band-aid yeah across the larynx yeah makes uh, sense but yeah they, they've obviously taken advantage of CGI so instead of it looking like a rubber mask like it used to in the original series and in, in, in Mission Impossible 1 they're, they're just going for CGI face swapping the, well the other things I forget about brutal opening it's, it is a brutal opening but you've got um, it's a Hans Zimmer soundtrack so Hans Zimmer is now one of the, the hardest working men but in the soundtrack is great in this film yeah, I think it, that's part of why it resonates with us is that we've got that music memory going on it's like true uh, the, all, the whole way through this film start to finish it's quite, uh, I mean... Well, it's, it's Hans Zimmer, it's fucking intense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really intense, and then it slowly builds and builds and builds, and then it's intense again. And there's lots of operatic singing. Yeah. It's, it's a bit... It, it's, uh, Gladiator. Yeah, well, that's it. We, we joke about uh, Alan Silvestri just doing the same thing over and over again, but Hans Zimmer is quite guilty that this soundtrack and Gladiator are quite similar. Yeah. In terms of the, uh, the, the lovely lady singing nonsense. And not very many years apart. Same here. Yeah, well, there you go. Send them the USB. Would, uh, would it have been a... No, it would have been a CD-ROM back then. C- an interactive CD-ROM. It would have been a CDI. 
Something that really dates this film, but also crops up in uh, X-Men, which came out the same years, Oakley's were so hot right yeah. then. So he gets his mission briefing via Oakley's. Yeah. Gets a first year Tony Hopkins with his mission briefings. I do interrupt your vacation. <laughs> and then we are quickly whisked away to España. To beautiful, beautiful Spain with its beautiful rolling hills and... Um, I don't know who this guy is. Yeah, Seville. So we're introduced to the thief. We get to see Tandy Newton in action. With her cracking rack. Yeah, and she's unfortunately is having to perform her tasks as a thief in very skimpy evening wear and has to straddle Tom, uh, sorry, Ethan, to complete the mission. But no, it's a good introduction. There's some good chemistry. There's there's a little bit of good banter. There's a very cringeworthy part where their eyes meet across the the flamenco dance floor what is that all about and it's really like bad cgi of like it's a very john woo sort of type sort of it feels early 90s i remember watching this with my wife and her just going i'm not sure i can watch the rest of this film (laughs) it was at that point in the first five minutes i'm glad you i'm amazed you got that far it was in that point she was just like this looks silly there is yeah there's there's so much slow-mo in this film Mm. i think i know i don't think there's enough i think if you cut out the slow-mo in this film we all 20 minutes if yeah, you run it at minutes. normal speed <laughs> it would be 20 minutes and there's so much grinning from the cruiser I mean we talked about he's he's very charming in the first Mission Impossible but he's playful in the first one in this one he's just more suave grinning like an idiot to quote the great Dougray Scott as we said yeah so we get to meet Tony Hopkins uh, gives him the briefing and he's having a ball yeah he's clearly on set for a day Mm -hmm. and having fun phoned it in (laughs) wouldn't be a vacation if you did I think it's uh, this isn't Mission Difficult it's Mission Impossible (laughs) yeah I think it's a shame he didn't appear in more episodes I think you know obviously it's, it's a again it's yeah we've talked about it's a, a stylistic choice that they've gone for like a different mission director with each, each time film, yeah. until they've obviously found Alec Bowen they've kept Alec Bowie but the other thing I I really like about this film and it's and it's a really random thing to like but I think it's quite refreshing to see Sydney as a backdrop for an action film yeah name name how many other big blockbuster films have been filmed I mean it's you know it's one of the most iconic cities in the world you know with the opera house the bridge mm-hmm. and yeah you, as you say you don't see it in any in many big films so yeah I, I think it's uh, it's quite a cool backdrop to, to see that at the same time, so you've got the mission happening in Sydney, but for some reason, Tom Cruise's mission base is in the outback, somewhere at a farm in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah, they're in the middle of nowhere, but that's, yeah, because I guess that's to add, to raise the stakes when necessary in the plot. Possibly. Do we now talk about Duke Gray Scott and his, he's so good, he's hammy, or he's so bad, he's good? I don't know, but I mean, this... I, I love him. I think he's... he's I love he's, him he's, in he's, this film. He's got a brilliant voice, and... Yeah. Bless him, he hasn't really had the career he should have done. He does like a lot of TV still, and he does a lot of voiceovers on adverts because he's got a great voice. No, I think he's good. I think he pulls ease. It's convincible action. I think he um, he's believable that he he's a he's an agent who's gone rogue. It's I like the, the rivalry between him. He's, he's I think he stands up well to Tom Cruise as, as a rival, much like in Goldeneye, Sean Bean and uh, Bronholm. Yeah, you yeah, know, true. I, I think they obviously they said, would he go well up against each other? You know? And 
and it is again I don't know if it, it, it probably is intentional but there are scenes there's a scene when they're at the races and he's got shades on and he does actually from a distance he looks a bit like Tom Cruise yeah yeah he can pull it off having to portray you <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and you've also got uh, another actor that's uh, he's an Australian actor that's cropped up um, usually playing the bad guy who's uh, your the Safa the South African guy you are Sean yeah yeah um, he's he's played by Richard Roxburgh yeah so he's an Aussie but very hammy uh, South African in this very very loathable yeah but no I, I, I like the team I like the setup I like the um, you've got Luther's back yeah Luther's back I thought it was a sequel <laughs> so he's back but I, I like the way I like the setup of this I like the fact that the plot is developing and you're trying to work out what's going on and then there's the, yeah as you said they move on to the race course and what is the most high tech way that you can watch a video well we can take a memory card out of a digital camera a massive memory card I mean that's that's really funny I mean, I mean that is a portable video camera yeah uh, it's the yeah, smallest true. video on offer whereas now it'll be like uh, I need you to well we can't really can we steal a link from somebody's phone like if you think download of, link yeah I, I mean Bond has struggled with this like we saw it in Skyfall where we've we're, the we're stealing now, of the knock list no no but just the fact that we're all walking around with you know 64 gig computers in our, you know, pockets. In our pockets so like having a box of tricks you know the gadgets have I don't know what they're going to do you know in the future like gadgets have had to evolve and this is funny looking back it's like it's a memory card from a I think it's a Canon or is no it would be a Sony I, we're, we're not sure yeah. it, it, it doesn't matter that's not important right now um, but no I, I do like that scene and we get to see um, Naya Nordoff Hall in action as the pickpocket she gets to show good for something silky skills dropping the some good moves into uh, my left, left jacket, jacket pocket. pocket and yeah we get to see all of them we see the whole team on both sides and it's nice that these are like these sort of mini missions you know that they're doing to because there's a few you know but, there's a but, few tasks yeah but the, the, the thing I think we well everyone can agree on that I think the reason why this film sort of falls down and isn't very much regarded by fans of the series is that it's pretty much the Tom Cruise show that there yeah. isn't much of a team mission which they definitely brought back in three onwards is the team working together yes Tom Cruise is the point man is the is the hero but everyone has a function whereas this it's a bit loose you've got who's the team in the third one though you've got uh, the Chinese girl you've got Reese, the, the Irish guy and you've got Simon Pegg yeah oh no he no he's sort of more sort of comes and you've got Luther Luther's still in it still back yeah maybe uh, he takes a break no I, I just get the feeling that the team thing is something that was brought in for Ghost Protocol the oh it's, no it's, it's definitely used to it's probably the best is in in Ghost Protocol but yeah it's, this uh, is still very much his film it's his production and it is pretty much and the film has to have a star Love it or hate this film, it has you know. I think it's hard to deny. It's got some great action sequences, some of the best. I mean, and, we and we, that's what that's what Wu's strength is. He is a great action director. Yeah, because we go from the race course to the aerobatic insanity. Yeah, hunt. Well, sorry, all we're doing is quoting Duke Gray Scott, but the atrium jump, which is a brilliant bit of camera work. Uh, the fact that he's got to get through the closing vents, he's got to jump, he's got to get in there, and he's he's, he's got to do it quietly. Then there's the the generator goes off, so they've lost. And yeah, yeah there's, there's some great sort of tension, t- tension before 
cruisers jumping around, gun in each hand. Yeah, spinning around. And shooting it's, endless hired goons. Yeah, and it is very much uh, John, John Woo doing that. But then he does this brilliant, when he has to escape, it's just a great set piece. The, and he does the bass jump, blows up the wall, does the bass jump. There's a lot to like. The hands and the music, you yeah. know, that woman's warbling away. You know, it's, it's all very slickly done. And it's all built up to, we now find up we find out what the whole plot is. They actually, we actually know what we've got. We've got a virus. We've got a antidote. Though um, I remember at the time watching it, one of my friends saying they were a bit disappointed that the uh, the chimera virus didn't turn people into half lion, half serpent monsters, <laughs> as is clearly indicated in the opening credits. Exactly. You know. Um, and who's who's the um, what's Gleason? Brendan Gleason. Brendan yeah, Gleason, as, as evil CEO. John C. McCloy. Yes. <laughs> Who, in some very on the nose dialogue, goes and there it is. I confess. Yeah, it is very <laughs> on the nose. So yeah, more face swapping. So Ethan Hunt's pretending to be Dr. Rusky. And at the exact same time, Dugray Scott is pretending to be Ethan Hunt to yeah. find out information from Naya. And there's, there's still more face swapping to come. So yeah, we've done the the skyscraper mission. Setting it up for the third act. Yes, so we get to, uh, I mean, when the third act kicks in, it's pretty much non-stop action, isn't it? Oh yeah, it? no, it's brilliant. I mean, it's basically, because there's a great bit in the film when they're looking for biocide and they say, oh yeah, show me the biocide blueprints. And so he pulls up and off, he pulls up this island. He says, oh no, 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 that's another that's another biocide yeah. facility which will actually come into play. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Um, so yeah, the third act is at this island facility, but we see, it's. I think it's just a great sort of James Bond-esque. You see him approach the island, taking out Picking the guards. people one by one. With these amazing stunts, these like Liu Kang Tekken type <laughs> kicks. Overhead uh, kicks. Bicycle kicks, uh, and all done absolute silence, but with, lo- with, with doves and lots pigeons. Of, lots of slow-mo, lots of doves and another another quick face swap but no but no, I mean but it's- on that point how many faces does he have in that bag because what are the <laughs> odds that he manages to knock out stamp the guy the, the South African guy he's just like okay I reckon um, he goes in with three faces everywhere he goes he's always got because because that again that's something that the third one does very well when they're doing the whole mission where they've got to make it they've got to make Philip Seymour Hoffman's face and they're carving it and then the yeah. the, mach- the, the machine breaks or was that another that's one that's the fourth one but um, they actually go into the detail of how they made the face whereas this one is just like yay Tom Cruise has got a few faces in his bag yeah. don't worry about that it was but, his plan all along but it's because he's obviously got a face for Stamp, yeah. but he's also got his own face to put on Stamp. That's weird. <laughs> I've <laughs> never in, thought about that. Just in case. I'll I keep never thought about that. It's like, I've got a face of myself. So, just in case. Did, what, who do you think? Maybe it's a sex toy. <laughs> it gives it, it gives it, would you mind putting this on while we do it so I can Tandy, look at myself? Andy, just put this on. Just put it on. Don't make it weird. Just, um, and just put on this voice plaster. So yeah, so that, that's something that I worked weird. out. I never like, worked out that Ethan Hunt carries around faces of his worst enemies for the mission and himself and himself but it's a good it's a good ploy I mean, and it's, it's it's a good bit of misdirection but yeah when you sort of think about it it's completely ridiculous Bobbins no this 
It's what's known as getting your gun off. More hammy acting from from our man Dugray Scott getting his gun off. Stock. Stock options, Stock options. to be exact. Um, and then we launch into the longest chase slash action scene slash fight. One of the best motorbike chases. Uh, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, you've got, yeah, motorbikes, you've got, I mean, there's some insane stunts in this. There's some great editing and choreography from Wu. There's a bit where he sort of does a front wheelie, spins the bike round, shoots the, a, the, a, the front tire of the car so the car shoots, flips no but he shoots the gunman first <laughs> then he shoots the, the car so it flips and then he shoots the petrol tank obviously, so it explodes obviously with incendiary rounds otherwise how would he ignite the, yeah. uh, the, the it petrol it does remind me of the matrix like when um, when Morpheus shoots the car and then samurai swords the wheels and then as the car turns over shoots the petrol gauge as well yeah it's, I mean so, it's, it's, it's brilliant gunishment Considering all he needs to do is really get the antidote to Naya, there's a lot of gunishment, explosions, and car chases. There's the, the brilliant bit where they're chasing each other and Cruz is firing behind him but using the mirrors to guide. That's silly. Very uh, silly. Very silly. But brilliantly silly. Um, yeah, there's some great ridiculous stunts. All of a sudden, the bike tires change from, from you know, slick tires to off-road. To off-road. And then before then we go hand to gland. Sorry, I mean hand to hand. Hand to hand, and there's some very cool like fighting in this. Like there's and he does cleanly take kick him in the face. Yes, you see the, there's a bit where he does the roundhouse. sort of cartwheel roundhouse yeah. kicks Dugray Scott in the face because you see sand come off Dugray Scott's face. Yeah, but there's also the other thing I forgot about is the knife and the eye stunt. Yeah, that's crazy. Which was actually they had. So how they did that, because again, Cruz wanted it to be as like real as possible. They had the knife was attached to a cable, so it could only go a certain length, but you can actually see the knife is like basically brushing against his uh, eyelashes. Yeah, it's insane. It's nuts. And then again, in, in true sort of woo fashion, the bit where he kicks the gun out of the sand. Jumps in, on the side. In slow-mo. I'm sure Dugray Scott could have shot him about 10 times in that yeah. whole sort of, he's spinning round. Yeah. Because he throws, the antidote kicks the gun, yeah. spins Throws, around. Yeah, shoot him, you fool! <laughs> shoot, shoot him! Shoot him! Shoot him! Shoot him! So yeah, I mean that was the uh, pretty much the the whirlwind uh, review for for MI2. Um, In terms of coulda, woulda, shoulda, we've got a bit of a change because there weren't that many, I mean, this was a sequel, it was pretty much done and dusted who was gonna be in it, but there is an interesting how things developed because this film overran and it affected somebody's career. Yeah, um, it affected, well, we've talked about, it's a shame that Dugray Scott hasn't gone on to do great things, but that wasn't uh, the original plan. So yeah, this film was a uh, victim of, uh, you know, reshoots overshoots and obviously to try and make some semblance of the plot but uh Dugray Scott was originally cast as Wolverine in the first X-Men film but because Mission Impossible 2 overran he had to drop out so they had to go back to the drawing board and cast one of their third or fourth choices which was some guy called Hugh Jackman I thought it was huge action. Huge action. So, yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest coulda, woulda, shouldas, like, ever, ever that the X-Men universe, the franchise, could have been a very, very different film with, uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine Dugray Scott in that role. 
or in the prestige or in the greatest showman (laughs) (laughs) exactly I mean and I think Hugh Jackman's even come out and said you know you you feel sorry for the bloke because I have said thank you to him yeah (laughs) but also it gave us Hugh Hugh Jackman who is one of the nicest guys in the world so yeah basically Mission Impossible 2 is 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 responsible for more interestingly enough yeah would this film have done better had Hugh Jackson hey that would be playing um, Drew Gray Scott's role hey that could have been fun I think that's something has, has Hugh Jackson ever played a villain you could argue in the prestige yeah. it's quite uh, the, the I think uh, antagonist should something do, do a bit more of I suppose okay, I'll get on the phone yeah. I'll let him know yeah but also interestingly of this the Mission Impossible franchise this is the only Mission Impossible film where he actually goes on a mission and doesn't go rogue he actually does what he's told. He exactly. actually completes mission accomplished. Yeah. Right. yeah in all the other films, he's disavowed. We are going rogue or assumed to be an enemy. So as we've talked about, this film means a lot to us because it reminds us of a certain time and we... We had a lot of fun watching it when we were it's younger. It's super silly. We know it's not perfect, but... It's a very silly... I mean... It's 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 definitely a guilty pleasure for us. It's not... I mean, it's, it is nonsense. It's silly. You wouldn't... But it is really sit back, unplug, and enjoy. Whereas the first one is an enjoyable romp of a spy film. This, I mean, I think it's the highest grossing film because people went and saw it and they came out of it. Mostly guys, but it's like, dude, you have to go see this film. The the stunts are insane. And that's what it was about. And to be fair, it's still a lot about what Mission Impossible is about today. It's all about what create, what you know, batshit crazy stunt is Tom Cruise gonna do next? And he's becoming Jackie Chan. He's broken his leg in this last film. They, I know, I've got on high authority and as you've probably heard, the scene where he makes the jump and breaks his leg is the scene they're keeping in the film. So when you watch Fallout and you see him do this building jump and you see him land awkwardly, you gotta know that he actually broke his ankle yes, I think he shattered his ankle shattered his ankle and then just carried on going yeah. so I mean this is this is if you're going to go and see these films for no other reason is let's see stunts taken to a new level well yeah I mean that's it the we've, we've talked about like we're both really excited for, for Fallout I mean it's looks like it's going to deliver it's got a great cast it's got a great cast I mean it's got a it's, good directorial you know, team with uh, McHugh and Cruz who've worked together on uh, Edge of Tomorrow they worked together on um Rogue Nation and they're showing the Jack Reacher yeah Jack Reacher together Um, you've got Henry Cavill yeah so so it's yeah I I think obviously Simon Pegg for comic relief obviously this is the first time that a director has returned for Mm -hmm. for a Mission Impossible so whilst I quite like them all having an individual feel I think you know out of all the directors it's great to have Macquarie back because people say these films generally just keep getting better and better I, I think the other thing you have to take into account is that if you line up the, the films that have come the last three Mission Impossible films against the last Bond films that have come out in the same time these films are better spy films yeah, yeah and definitely. they deliver more of what Bond used to deliver than, than the current Bond films are Bond is trying to re-establish itself they're trying to make it work with Daniel Craig but no I mean I, I well, look it's, forward it's, it's, I look, I'm more looking forward to watching Mission Impossible Fallout than I am than I was for the last Bond film well I think the thing that the, the later Mission Impossible films have captured that Bond is kind of lost in the past few films is the sense of fun yeah. these films are silly stunts yeah, they, they know it's hammy it's, bad guys it's, it's entertainment <laughs> but they're not trying to be anything else than that fingers crossed Fallout delivers I yeah. know oh, I think I think from from close sources in Paramount I think we can say that every, all of the footage everything's looking good 
Um, it'll depend on its opening weekend, but you know they've had this date booked in for a while. There's nothing else coming out that's going to steal its thunder. Mm. Um, so no, I, I'd, I'd be I'd be very surprised if this film doesn't perform and do lots of money. So that was a bit of a marathon episode we've squeezed Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 2 if you've you know I, I think we've sort of we've been fairly fair on MI2 we've, we've talked about what's what we love about it we like what, it but what, we realise it's 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 very silly it's very hammy very cheesy yeah. um, highest grossing film of 2000 so put that in your pipe and smoke yeah it. so yeah in terms of next time Retro Ramble will return. Are we going De Palma to De Palma? I think we are revisiting De Palma. So we are, we're getting off the topical track and uh, we're just picking a film that we love and we're going to go and do uh, Brian De Palma's Untouchables. And we will have a guest on the show. Yes, uh, very. For the first time, we will have a, a special appearance. By somebody who works in TV and news and uh, video production, but it's somebody for whom both Sean Connery and The Untouchables is very close to his heart and a very close friend of ours. So it's practically extended family. So almost family. You've got that to look forward to in next month's episode. Yes. Yeah, so thank you for listening. We're on all of the social medias. Just search for us under Retro Ramble. You find us on our blog, which we, which we. Try try to update as often as possible that's retroramble.blog and you can get us on you know all the podcasting channels stitcher on libsyn on itunes on spotify acast and as i say we are right here right now we're in paris right now so if you're in the area give us a shout pop on or, by or you know the the, the the phones you know phones there so call in yeah send us a voice memo just yeah. send us some messages but no thank you for listening a longer than normal episode we hope you've enjoyed it thank you for your patience yeah we suggest you go back and watch one of them depending on what type of film you want but if you like these sort of films we hope you've enjoyed this podcast I've been Charlie McGee I've been George McGee and we'll see you next time bye bye, -bye. John, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just, just a crazy thought, I just got this idea, but uh, what if when Tom jumps off of the bike, and when they're both coming at each other, if right before, and this is just something that just flew in my head here, if he turns to camera and goes, this mission, it just got a hell of a lot more impossibler. Boom, then you do the hit. What do you think? But we'll think about it. Go away. You gotta be kidding.